Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I am your host, Scott Challoner, and you join us on a sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on the programme today, I'm delighted to be joined by Lynn Hammersley, MBE. Lynn is a qualified PE teacher, coach and manager at the Forest of Dean Gymnastics Club based at Five Acres Colford, Gloucestershire. Uh, Lynn, very warm welcome to you today and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure having you with us. And the reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And considering that today's generation of business leaders is going through probably one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it's fair to say, in the shape of COVID-19, I feel it would be remiss of me not to ask you just to what extent the pandemic has affected you and your operations at the club. Well, to begin with, we were watching what was happening in Italy, France and other countries. And I would say that to begin with, we felt relatively untouched. We were listening to a broadcast from the government uh, who was saying, they were talking about herd immunity and people getting it being a very mild disease. So we weren't too worried to begin with. And um, then suddenly the sort of national death figures started being published and I thought, Mm, this is a bit more serious. But then finally, there, there were sort of rumours that everything was going to lock down, close down. Children were quite excited because enough because they thought they would get time off school. And um, But then suddenly, on March the 20th, we were in the middle of a training session. We received a phone call from my husband, and he said, you have to close now. And it literally was as instant as that. So the next weekend and the, and the next training and everything couldn't take place. And we had to contact parents, take their children home. And um, basically, we closed on March the 20th. There was then a period of listening to the government broadcast, finding out what was going on, what we were supposed to do, looking at gov.uk, um, seeing how it affected all, you know, our operations. Because we, I actually run a gymnastics and fitness centre. So all our fitness members, everybody was affected. Um, we, I just, I would say the first month was exploration, just finding out information, seeing what was going to happen. And then um, towards July, we could see that things might be reopening um, and fitness gyms were going to be the first. During the period that we were closed, we redecorated to try and make sure that uh, everything looked fresh and vibrant when people came back. We cleaned. Um, everybody was on furlough apart from myself. I was the essential person to sort of keep the business going and see what needed doing. And my administrator, who administered the furlough and the, um, the wages, you know, she paid people. So she came in to do that one week in four. Mm. Other than that, I was working on my own in a big empty building, which is very cold and very soulless, and just trying to keep in contact with people. And communication was a big thing, finding out what was wanted and then relaying that information to other people. People were worried about their jobs. Um, we were worried about the business. Our income dried up instantly, absolutely nothing. And really, our big saving has been the furlough scheme and the £25,000 grant which we were very relieved to receive to enable 
you know, they need um, my administrator to carry on working and to um, do the jobs that we needed to do to make sure that when people came back, they were safe. And um, I think it was the 28th of July, we were opened the fitness gym and we had to communicate to members that we were opening, what we were doing, all our new procedures, um, how we were going to keep them safe. Um, obviously, during that time, we'd been ordering things like hand sanitizing dispensers and fluids and things, obviously, to keep everybody clean. And um, people sort of crawled back the first week. And then um, we've got reduced opening hours. We're not opening at weekends. We're just opening mornings and evenings. And then three weeks ago, we introduced some small groups of gymnasts, again, with very clear procedures with rights to what they do when they come outside. They bring a box their clothes, for their box and for their clothes and everything to go in. And um, that's taken into the gym, put on a designated spot and everything. We feel all our procedures work really well. Government advice, advice to British gymnastics has all been followed to the letter and um, people feel safe such that next week we're bringing our other gymnasts back um, and hopefully we'll start to get the business rolling again. It's, it's taken... It has taken an incredible amount of resilience from leaders in businesses and organisations all over the UK during this time to get through this period. And I suppose that considering the origins of the Forest of Dean Gymnastics Club, um, you're no stranger to showing resilience because you moved premises on several occasions to get the club to essentially the point it's at now, as well as having an 11-year fundraising operation to make all of this possible that's now there. And I think you have to be, yes, you do have to be resilient. You have to stay strong. There are times in the past few months when I have been, it's been stressful, really stressful. Um, And on occasion you have to say, actually, I go home now. And you walk away from it and come back to it fresh the next day. Um, that happened on two occasions when I just realised that you did need to walk away from it because it has consumed the whole of my life, really, of thinking. You're constantly thinking when you're at home, you're either researching products that you need or you're um, thinking, you know, even what you want to do the next day and what is critical, what has to be done in a certain time frame. At the moment, we're trying to get our gym house back, so trying to get answers from people that aren't answering their emails been quite difficult so you know how much the club is not coming back which will I think we're going to lose about 30% of the club but we've got a long way to live and we've got cash reserves so we're going to survive very definitely but resilient I think yes you do have to be strong because you've got to be strong for the people you've got to be strong for your staff who are very worried they're managing on furlough pay and you've got to be there for them um, I think every single person has been impacted in a totally different way by COVID and different people have different problems um, and you've got to be there to support them. Mm. 
And thinking about the fact that there has been a great amount of worry and uncertainty during this time, just how important do you feel that mental health is in leadership, both in terms of safeguarding your own mental health and also that of those around you? Because it's become a huge topic in sport itself in recent years, but it has been truly thrust back into the limelight by the COVID-19 situation and the social isolation that it's brought about. It is very important and I think one of the things is that you know your staff and you know the children I've been concerned about that they've actually bounced back and they've been fine so it's taking care but even things like us sending like lengthy three-page document out to all our parents to say, will you go through this with your children? Because when they come back, you know, when they come to the building, they're going to stand outside in a certain place in a certain spot. They'll be allowed in. This is what's going to happen when they come in. So that they're prepared. A bit like when children are going to a new secondary school or something. Uh, if they're in their mind prepared for what is going to happen, and that's both staff and children, it will be okay. And everything that we've done has been okay for us. Uh, the staff have followed procedures to the letter and we're, it's become normal now. And I think because they're comfortable with it, they haven't been the mental strains. I think financially for some of them, there will be. I mean, I have had uh, a few members of staff have resigned, and, um, but I think it's because they're doing other things anyway. And it's just really, it's your job as the manager or the leader to just talk to people and make them feel comfortable, allow them to come and talk to you, tell them to open up and be open with them. I've been very open about when I felt um, lonely or how difficult it's been. I've told them that I've been stressed, how stressful what the stresses were, and it's helped me as much as it's helped them. And when you're in a leadership position during a time like this, it is only natural that people around you will look to you for inspiration, guidance and a bit of direction. But when you are the person who is essentially leading the whole operation and there isn't anybody above you to refer to in that sense, where is it that you tend to look to for inspiration as and when you need it? Um. We are a charity, a limited company, and I have a body of trustees. And there's one person on the trustee board who is in business, totally different business, who I use as a sounding board. And in fact, there's, there's two, one ex-business and one business person. Uh, and I have said to him, what are you doing with, with your organisation or how are you managing your staff? And he was the person that said, you need, you need to keep working. You need to be the essential person in the business. And from there, you can direct operations. Because to begin with, it was, so am I furloughed? So who runs the business? You know, that question is there. So what does this really mean? Oh, I, I offer to take a pay cut. I'll, match, I'll take a 20% pay cut too to match what the others are getting. And, um, and he said, no, you don't do that because you're essential. And that sort of gave me permission then to be the essential person, even though I was the essential person, and even though I would have done it regardless of whether I had any money, um, I realised that to the business it was essential. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's the way we went. And if I have other questions, then I would probably contact him 
and he would give me a very good, you know, good answer, an open and an honest answer as well. And I sort of asked how his business was going. And, and it, can, it could be anything. It's simple. At the moment, we're, we're looking at something called fogging. Should we be fogging our gym with, with sprays? And I'm not comfortable about putting chemicals all over a gym where children are, I mean, we're, we're cleaning, obviously. So mm. I'm cleaning. But I'm not comfortable about having a residue of chemicals where children are being cartwheels and handstands and things. Um, and there's, there's questions like that. And so I'm constantly, I go home at night and then I'm researching to find out if it's a good idea or not a good idea. <laughs> um, so, yes, that's where we've been, really. Mm. Now, our time on the programme today, Lynn, is drawing to a close, unfortunately. But just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme, we know that over the next 12 months, we're going to have to continue to adjust to this new normal way of living and working. But as we grapple with that, and hopefully in the process of shaking off the shackles of this pandemic for good, what is next for you and for the Forest of Dean Gymnastics Club? And what are you really hoping to achieve during that time? Well, from the gymnastic side, um, I think we are going to focus more on the recreational and the giving children the opportunity to do gymnastics and physical activity, and maybe less on the competition side, uh, while keeping that going but to the lower level, and to fill the club back up to bring in money, really, to sustain the club, to enable us over the next year to be able to pay our way, profit. Okay, that would be nice, but I think if we can just sustain ourselves, that would be great. On the fitness side, people are coming back to fitness, and we aim to give them a good experience. We want to grow the fitness side. At the moment, we're limited to um, limited numbers in our two fitness areas, so we can basically have 10 people in at a time. But we're in a rural area, and we don't normally get more than 10 or 11 people in at a time anyway. And I think for the moment, this sustenance is just sustaining the business and gradually increasing our numbers. Um, we need new staff. Um, we need we need gymnastic coaches. I'll be looking for another coach. But at the moment, I haven't got a a firm full time job to offer because I don't know what the future offers. When everything's on limited numbers, so everything's part time. But I think we will gradually open up. Depends whether we get a drastic second wave. I can't see us really going forward until after Easter. Uh, we will we'll slowly go forward, but I think after Easter will be when we begin to build up again. And I would hope that by next September, we would be back to normal. And I think we keep doing what we're doing, try and keep everybody safe, look after our staff, keep communication lines open, get everybody giving the best service they can and just let people know we're here. Mm. let's certainly hope that there will be some positive news in the next few months to share in uh, that regard for sure Lynn and just given how enlightening it's been listening to your views this morning I actually think it would be wonderful to perhaps catch up in future and have you back on the program with us at some point in this next year just to see how things are coming along and we can reassess just where we are at that point in time thank you very much indeed it's yes, been like that's been wonderful having you join us today lynn and a real real pleasure and most importantly until we do hopefully speak again please do take care and stay safe with all still going on thank you very much indeed and you too thank you for inviting me 
Thank you for your time today, Lynn. It's wonderful. And I would also reiterate that message to all of those tuning in today. Please do look after yourselves, look after others and stay safe. It does make a real, real difference in saving lives during this time. Um, I was speaking on today's programme to Lynn Hammersley, MBE, coach and manager at the Forest of Dean Gymnastics Club in Gloucestershire. Coming up next on the programme today, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, among other clubs, but he remains most renowned for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup, following his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the Old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago. That is coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it may it last. Absolutely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer, and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who was a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely, and I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter, and I just I really want the country to do well in in anything in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I want up wanting to bury it, and I'll be absolutely. I would be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my, uh, my achievement. It's about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. 
um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving, as a whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back, to uh, hand still Kowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game's got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss it, it and it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt, can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks, uh, of making it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships, but that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run up with enough, enough funding for it and so on, but really we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and, and also into what was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different, different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that 
identify then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that... I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coincidence and the fortunate in your life to be at the time when I was physically at my my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be around to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, he is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. Managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh, yes, I think it's, yes, I think it's, 
leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think like that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes, but it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life uh, and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or places very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenway, it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road, um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, we didn't as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road. Um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal. And so it's just three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't, didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they... Um, took us to court and uh, we actually got fined this is absolutely true we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden astounding when you think about it isn't it mm. and when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street and uh, we were actually but that that happens that happens you'll, you'll hear stories we see stories of neighbours falling out over different things you see those those stories every day but that was certainly a true story absolutely absolutely true and during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was... Pr- probably I was the eldest of three 
when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think, was had a big influence, going back to that third gold in the World Cup, in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelsea. And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed, and I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't... I wasn't a child, although I had a footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial w- with them, and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school living age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football, I was pretty reasonably good. There was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or. Uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said I'm going to try you up front he put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically and I suppose as well what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire wasn't it yes a lot of people know that uh, one game uh, one game the sort of went messing about but between the two I had one first class game for Essex as you said Egberth in, um, in Liverpool and I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game for me. I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season early games for those two or three years extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a midfield mm. player so um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, 
of course, not related to your own career is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just sitting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely, lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometime he'd, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of, and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banks, was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that had come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson. 
which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight, and uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to to stay with me. What he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life, and you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould, mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, he was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in America, it was the early days of... Um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle. So it's difficult to make a uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we it was a great time for the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final. So it was a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was... I wasn't at my best and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contribution to that success the club had. So, um, yes, it, uh, the, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, I think she was uh, pregnant with her daughter over there so that was that was a good time it's completely different Ireland was just a just a I always joke about Ireland I was there for about I think a month I think it was and I enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England <laughs> new kitchen <laughs> So it certainly went really well I suppose in the waning days of um, your career um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you finished playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And I always jokingly say, 
you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management on management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.